I am going to tell you a story that a powerful state doesn't want you to know about tens of thousands who have disappeared. Once they get into the hands of the military, they will be tortured brutally. It's a story so dangerous to tell that for some, it's meant ending up on a kill list. She was seen as a dangerous political actor and a threat to Pakistan's security, but she was a local hero. The Kill List, a six-part investigative podcast, available now. Get early access to episodes at cbc.ca slash listen, or by subscribing to the CBC True Crime Premium channel on Apple Podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. On September 16th, a young woman in Iran died while in the custody of the country's notorious morality police. What you're hearing is the sound of protests that have been raging across Iran ever since that day, with people from all walks of life chanting her name and calling for the downfall of the Iranian regime. Masa Amini was just 22. She'd come to Tehran with her family all the way from a city called Sakez in Iran's Kurdistan province. She was standing outside of a train station with her brother when the morality police came up to her, accused her of not wearing the hijab properly, and detained her. Hours after her arrest, she fell into a coma. And three days later, she died. The exact details of her death are still unclear, but witnesses say that she was beaten while in custody, an allegation police deny. The cousin of the Kurdish woman who died in the custody of Iran's morality police has told Sky News police tortured her before her death. Eyewitnesses who were in the police van with her told us and our family that during the journey to the police station, she was tortured and insulted. Once they reached the holding room at the station, Masa, because of the torture, lost consciousness and collapsed. And as word of her death got out, Tehran erupted in protest. The outrage quickly spread to every corner of the country and to the Iranian diaspora around the world. People in Iran have taken to the streets many times in the 40 years since the Islamic Revolution in 1979. But these protests are some of the biggest and most explosive the country's ever seen. This week on the show, we're looking at this unrelenting protest movement, the decades of resentment fueling it, and why this time might be different from all the times that came before. My guest is Iranian-American journalist Nagar Mortazavi. I'm Tamara Kandakar, and you're listening to Nothing is Foreign. Hi, Nagar. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Tamara. So, Nagar, we've been hearing over and over again how these protests in Iran are unprecedented in a bunch of different ways. And I want to start with the level of anger that we're seeing right now. How is this different from what we've seen in Iran before? Well, I think the very significant thing is that this protest, at the heart of it, is a women's rights issue. 
I see this as a feminist revolution, really a feminist uprising. And we see a lot of young women at the forefront of this very brave, risking their lives essentially. Despite an ever-increasing death toll and a fierce crackdown by security forces using tear gas, clubs, and in some cases, live ammunition, protests continue to gather momentum amongst Iranians. Activists are telling me that when you look at the death toll, when you look at the arrests, the journalists who are being detained, we see a lot of women at the forefront and very present as far as the numbers and also the prominence. It's also men, women and allies who are shoulder to shoulder fighting this. And it's not only the mandatory hijab. It's not only the morality police. That was definitely the spark of it. But there is layers of underlying political, economic, social, cultural grievances that culminated in this outpouring of this raw anger. Every time there's a new spark, in 2019, the spark was a hike in fuel prices. This time was Masa Amini's death. You have these big groups and cities and towns across the country just joining in because they feel like the street is the only avenue that's left open for them and that the state is not really addressing their grievances and that they have no other avenue to pursue change. But one of the predominant chants you hear is people saying, say her name, Mahsa Amini, so mm. she's not forgotten. I want to talk about some of those previous waves of protest and how this is a continuation. But before we go there, there's something that you mentioned that I want to follow up on. And it's how these protests are unprecedented in the way that they've swelled to include a lot of different segments of Iranian society. And I wanted to go through who's involved. And you mentioned the role of men. Why are men getting involved in these protests in a way that we haven't seen before? Essentially, the spark is a women's rights issue, the way women are forced by the state to dress and the violence that they've been subjected to over the past four decades. And women have been pushing back against this force. But now men also see their own sisters in Mahsa Amini. So Mahsa Amini was just, she's the embodiment of your average, normal young girl, a small town girl who was visiting the capital with her brother. She wasn't protesting. She wasn't doing anything political or controversial. She wasn't an outspoken artist or a journalist. It was just a small town girl who got off the metro and eventually ended up in the hospital in a coma and died. I heard from a protester in another small town who was saying, my own sisters were in Tehran around the same time, and they dressed very similar to Mahsa Amini. Are you going to take them and kill them too? My body is full of those pellet bullets, but I'm here to claim the rights of the next generations. Please get out and demand your rights. And again, going back to those layers of grievances, all of those political, social, economic grievances apply to men and women. The other interesting thing that we've seen is 
even very religious people and religious scholars are speaking out against the morality police there. What are the arguments that they're making? So I've heard some criticism from some protesters saying this is not about the religious people and everybody is speaking up and that the religious scholars have no credibility anymore. And I understand those criticisms, but I find it important that now we have a diversity of views opposing this issue. Now we have the very religious base in the society that the government has been relying on, that the government has claimed to represent, that the government is essentially doing this violence in their name, because the government doesn't say, we're using violence to enforce this on millions of women who don't believe in it. No, their discourse is that this is what Iranian women want. This is our culture. This is our local dress code. It's significant because a group of religious Iranians, a group of hijabi women, some religious scholars are not speaking up and saying, don't do this in our name. And there was this hashtag on Instagram. I saw tens of thousands of posts that said, I am hijabi, but I oppose the morality police. There mm-hmm. are religious scholars, political party, a grand ayatollah even coming out and saying, this is not even Islamic. This is not what Muslims are ordered to do within the religion, to go and use this type of violence, and in this case, lethal violence against others to impose their own religious belief and virtue on them. One other ironic point about this is that we also hear stories of religious women, hijabi women being stopped by the morality police. So women who observe the hijab in the private of their own home go outside and their dress code is deemed un-Islamic by the morality police and they get stopped. So it's become this subjective reading or interpretation of what the hijab is supposed to be that even women who choose to wear it are subjected to this humiliation, to this discrimination. What about racial, ethnic, class solidarity? Are we seeing more of that this time around? Yes. So Masa Amini was originally Kurdish from a small town in the Kurdish region in Western Iran, an ethnic minority, a religious minority, and just a some impoverished province and community that has endured years of discrimination and repression by the central government. So Her funeral was severely restricted by the state. Her family has been under a lot of pressure. Her Kurdish community, leaders in her community um, have all been pressured. They didn't want the funeral to turn into a protest, which it did. And also one of the main slogans from her community in the Kurdish language, Jenjian Azadi, has now turned into one of the main slogans of protests on the street. People have translated into Farsi, Zan Zendegi Azadi. And then into English, even in the diaspora. Woman, life, freedom. I wonder if we can just take a step back here and explain sort of what started all of this. People are protesting 
among other things, Iran's mandatory hijab laws, as well as Iran's morality police. And first of all, can you just explain for people who might not know anything about this, what these laws are? Sure. So the mandatory hijab law, the Islamic dress code, became part of Iranian law after the 1979 revolution, the Islamic revolution, and with the founding of the Islamic Republic. Following the revolution, the dress code was slowly imposed, first on women who worked in the government, then in the private sector, and then eventually rolled out in the public. That required women to cover their hair and also cover their entire body up to the wrist, so only hands showing. And at the beginning of the revolution, their enforcement was very severe. So what was acceptable by the state was only dark, solid colors, black, brown, navy, loose clothing, so even tight-fitting clothing, even if it was covered the entire body, it wouldn't be acceptable. Even makeup, nail polish, and and visible jewelry, for example, tattoos, all, all of these were deemed inappropriate and illegal, and it was violently forced on the street. But over the past four decades, women have slowly pushed back against what the state deemed mandatory today. You see colorful clothing, you see short, tight, lots of hair showing, you know, the body, hands, legs. It's not because of a a tolerance or an evolution in the state, but because women have been fighting this individually in their communities. And nowadays, Mm -hmm. you even see some young women, even before the Mass Amini episode, you see young women on the street taking off the scarves when they're driving, when they sit in cafes, essentially defying this mandatory job rule and defying the morality police. And the morality police has been tasked with enforcing this with violence because they have the authority to arrest, to detain, to throw in these notorious police vans that they have. They go around town, they fill up the van, and then they take women to the detention center. So the violence of the morality police is basically an extension of this mandatory hijab law um, and uh, the way it's being enforced on women because women refuse to follow the law and they refuse Mm -hmm. to be quote-unquote guided. The morality police literally translates to the guidance patrol, gashte ershad. So they use arrests, they use detention, sometimes they beat women, they pull them, they throw them in vans, and they treat them essentially like criminals. I wonder if you can put the hijab laws in context for us, aside from the mandatory hijab laws, what is it like to be a woman in Iran right now under this regime? So the hijab law is just one form of discrimination, the most visible one. It has to do with the everyday life of the average woman. But the discrimination against women goes way beyond that. It exists in family law, in uh, marriage, in divorce laws. Women still need permission from their husbands if they want to travel outside the country. Issue in Iran. Conservatives continue to try and ban women from even attending sports events. And the captain of Iran's women's national soccer team was not able to participate in the Asian championships because her husband wouldn't allow her to renew her passport. A husband's permission to leave the country is required by Iranian law. 
in child custody, there's discrimination against women, the mother, um, priorities given to the man, to the husband, to the father, to his father, to the male guardians. There's discrimination at work, in professional life, in studying at universities. And even in the highest ranks of politics, women uh, so far have not been able to run for president, even though they're very highly qualified and popular political figures that are women. I want to emphasize there's also been a lot of pushback. Brave women have been pushing back and they have made some success over the years, slowly achieved rights in certain areas, but there's still a long way to go and a lot of discrimination that's rooted not only in Islamic rules and this fundamental view of the religion, but also in centuries of patriarchy. December 2017, Nadia Atwi's vehicle is discovered wedged into some bushes at a park near her home. Just want to tell her that I love her. Come back today. I would forget about what happened. But Nadia is never seen again. If I go back, I would react differently, but I didn't know. The next call, the case of Nadia Atwi, available now on the CBC Listen app and everywhere you get your podcasts. I know the previous president, Hassan Rouhani, he was considered a reformist. So have things gotten worse for women with President Raisi coming to power? Hassan Rouhani was a cleric, a religious figure, but he came from the more moderate or centrist camp within the Iranian political structure. He promised a lot of political and social reforms, although he couldn't fulfill many of his promises. But with Ebrahim Raisi coming to today, he's an ultra-conservative clergy, comes from the conservative and hardline factions of the Iranian political structure, in fact, comes from a religious faction in the religious city of Mashhad that have had very more conservative and fundamentalist views of the religion, of the role of women. CNN's Christian Amanpour sits before an empty chair. The world leader she was all set to interview was Iran's hardline president. But he backed out at the last minute after demanding that the veteran TV journalist wear a headscarf. I have never been asked by any Iranian president, and I have interviewed every single one of them since 1995, either inside or outside Iran, never been asked to wear a headscarf. We're hearing from women on the ground, everyday citizens and activists, that the situation has gotten even worse since he became president last year, that even this uh, morality police has become more aggressive over the past year, and that they're witnessing further closing of the political space of social, cultural, and artistic rights in the country. There's a lot of pressure on filmmakers, on artists, on uh, political activists and journalists, it's definitely going towards a more conservative and hardline era. Just going back to what you were talking about earlier, how there are layers of grievances and this hijab issue is at the heart of this movement, but people are protesting a lot of different things and this has been building up for years and years. Can you talk a little bit about that? What else are people demanding and what else are these protests about? 
Sure. So we hear a lot of radical slogans on the street, very angry and radical slogans against the entirety of the regime, death to the dictator, death to the regime. The Iranian economy is in a very bad shape. There's a lot of mismanagement in the country, a lot of corruption. People see how the children or the families or the acquaintances of those in power are benefiting from this corruption. And the average citizen has just gotten poorer and poorer. The COVID uh, situation, the pandemic was severely mismanaged by the government. Access to vaccines, the way they accepted that the virus had entered the country and uh, prevented the news from spreading or were denying the severity of the pandemic. Not only did Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei not manage this situation well from the beginning, he in fact denied there was any problem. He said the outbreak was a hoax, propaganda from Iran's enemies. All of these have created a lot of anger in the population. There's also political grievances. People are angry at the political class for the economic reasons that I mentioned, for their mismanagement, for their corruption, and also for closing the political space further and further and essentially eliminating even the moderates and the reformists within the political structure. So last year in the presidential election, any viable competition in the moderate and reformist camp was disqualified from running. And People see Ibrahim Raisi essentially as a shooing candidate by the hardliners and conservatives whose path was cleared for him to win the election. So people feel this sense of suffocation in politics, in the economy, in their everyday life with no prospect for the future. They just don't want the entirety of the system anymore because they also feel like change has not happened and their demands have not been addressed. In previous protests, we've seen these very violent crackdowns by the government. And this time, the government's been blocking access to mobile networks and some social media platforms like WhatsApp and Instagram, which has made it kind of difficult to get really up-to-date information about what's been happening on the ground. But what do we know about how the government's been treating demonstrators? We see a lot of violence, brutal violence on the street. We've seen security forces shooting directly at protesters. A lot of beating. Iranian authorities have arrested thousands of protesters and the NGO Iran Human Rights warned on Monday that security forces are using live rounds. The government has restricted access to social media, raising fears of an escalation in violence. Internet is shut down in Iran, so that when the internet is down, they kill people in that silence easily. And this is something we've seen in the past. We saw brutal violence and crackdown in November 2019 with protests that were sparked by the hike in fuel prices. The state essentially brought down an iron fist. They killed hundreds of protesters on the street. The exact figures are still unknown to this day. The unemployment rate has been rising for the past five years. Prices of basic goods have increased. The value of the Iranian currency has dropped. And thanks to a dramatic shift in U.S. policy toward Iran, the prospect of foreign investment is very grim. 
Thousands of protesters were arrested, many of them given very harsh sentences after the arrest, um, many reports of torture and detention, and there was also a near total shutdown and blackout of internet. This time around, it seems like the same recipe is being used, a lot of brutal violence by security forces, targeting of activists, activists are getting calls, protesters are getting calls, asking them to stay home, to tone it down, to not be active online. Dozens of journalists have been arrested. These are all part of the same playbook that we saw in 2009, 2019, and also the protests that have erupted in between in these years. I just want to zoom out a little bit. There has been a lot of international support for these demonstrations, and some of that has come from countries that are hostile to Iran. And today, we stand with the brave citizens and the brave women of Iran who right now are demonstrating to secure their basic rights. But here's what I know. The future will be won by those countries that unleash the full potential of their populations, where women and girls can exercise equal rights. And today, the U.S. Treasury sanctioned Iran's morality police and senior security officials, condemning them for abuse and violence against Iranian women and the violation of the rights of peaceful protesters. And I wonder if you can explain for me how this international support is being received inside Iran. Well, it's very encouraging. The Iranians have been asking for solidarity, for support, for the global community to hear them, to echo their voice and not forget them. I'm curious, though, I've seen some criticism of American politicians offering their support to Iranian women while the U.S. has in place this sanctions program against Iran that's made life very difficult for the average person. What do you think of that argument? Well, the argument is valid, but that doesn't take away from the brutality and the violence of the Iranian government. Economic sanctions are part of the bigger problem of Iran's economy. The U.S. aimed to target Iran's oil industry, but everyday Iranians have felt the effects of the sanctions. In February 2019, the World Bank reported Iran's inflation rate had grown 42% from the previous 12 months, driving food prices up almost 63%. But economic sanctions are not the reason the Iranian state is committing violence against protesters. The repression, the political repression, the social, the cultural repression are not an extension of economic sanctions. But at the same time, adding more economic sanctions and adding to the misery of the lives of everyday Iranians is also not the solution. Regardless of the, who the messenger is, the message against the brutality and the violence of the Iranian state is still credible. And these two things can be correct at the same time. Based on what you were saying earlier about the way that the government is responding to these protests, it doesn't really seem like they're budging at all. There's been all this violence, arrests. They're summoning ambassadors from other countries to talk to them about how news coverage that's been critical of the regime is, they see it as intervention. Have you seen any signs that these protests are going to bring about real change? 
It's hard to say, I don't want to speculate, but as far as the government's response, because there's messaging and then there's action. As far as the government's response, we see no remorse. First of all, they denied that Mahsa Amini died in the custody of a violent force. They deny that the morality police commits violence. They try to say she had an underlying health condition. She died of a heart attack, were not responsible. Her family was saying she was a young, healthy woman. And also the messaging that they're putting out, there's no remorse, no responsibility, no promises of any change, of mm -hmm. stopping or investigating this brutality, this violence of the morality police. That's the messaging part. As far as action, I'm hoping that this would be a wake-up call, that especially with the religious community speaking up, I'm hoping this would be a turning point or a wake-up call. And even if they don't accept responsibility or defeat publicly we've seen in the past that sometimes they go back and quietly make changes to not seem like they were defeated or that they gave in but change has happened in instances in the past so i'm hoping that this would be at least a beginning to an end of the morality police of this violence against women and of imposing a certain religious belief or a reading of religion on women at least and Obviously, the protesters on the street are hoping to see more fundamental change. I'm just not sure how much change will these protests bring because we've also seen in the past that protests have been repressed. There's been crackdowns and people were sent back to their homes and not much change has happened. So it's hard to speculate. People are showing a lot of bravery and courage, staying on the street, risking their lives. And I'm just hoping that the mass Amini's death and the death of all these protesters and their bravery wouldn't be for nothing. So amid their anger and grief and the violent repression by police, protesters have had to find ways to inspire each other. This is a Farsi version of the Italian anti-fascist anthem Bella Ciao, sung by two Iranian sisters. <laughs> The original is a folk song from the paddy fields of northern Italy. People there used to sing it to protest harsh working conditions. And later, it became the song of the Italian resistance movement that opposed the German occupation during World War II. We're going to leave you with this soulful rendition of the song that's going viral this week. Crowds of protesters are singing it, and it's emerging once again as a revolutionary anthem. All right, that's all for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Our producer this week is Sami Bassi. Our sound designer is Yvette Sin, and our showrunner is Joyta Shangupta. 
Nothing is Foreign is a co-production of CBC News and CBC Podcasts. Willow Smith is our senior producer and Nick McCabe-Locos is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Joseph Shavison. If you like this episode, please take a second to rate and review us wherever you're listening. It really helps new listeners find the show. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at CBC Podcasts. I'm Tamara Kandacker. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you back here next week. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.